What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Game Dev Unchained, the number one game development podcast about game development and the lifestyle thereof. I am your host, Brandon Pham, and with me, a special guest, Joe Sheppy. How you doing, Joe? Nice to meet you, Brandon. Nice to meet you. Uh, this is the part of the podcast where I ask our guest, which is yourself, to kind of give a short bio to the listeners and viewers out there of who you are, of where you came from, where you're at right now, where you're heading. Happy to do that. Um, so Joe Sheppy, I'm the, the CEO and co-founder of a company called Solston. Um, we work with most major game developers to understand audiences on a psychological level. Um, we use AI to do that. We do it anonymously. So we believe privacy is power, but we're here to help enable them to really understand and, and exceed all of your experiential expectations. So how do we empower um, better games, better experiences? What is the next generation of that? And, you know, we believe that the more or less the cognitive layer of the internet is what is required to do that as most of what's created today is, is purely based on behavior, which is very limiting. Uh, my, my past and history, uh, I used to be the head of UX at big fish games, um, before that, I was in UX and I was an adventure-based psychotherapist. So I worked with patients, um, worked with mental health, worked with human potential, coaching, that sort of stuff. Um, but long career in UX, developing applications. And the reason Solston got developed more or less is I was asking myself, you know, we're building all these experiences for people, uh, but people seem to be the number one thing that are excluded from them. So how do we make sure we're building healthier digital realities and not making a lot of the mistakes we did in our physical reality over the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years where a lot of our systems were built around efficiency, around cars, but not really around humans and human beings. So what better place to do that than than with games? Yeah, there's a there's definitely a lot here to kind of unravel because, you know, being in the game industry for so long, UX. Well, UI and UX have always been kind of melded together. And like for someone like me, who's kind of more on the art side of things, I've always kind of like, oh, user interface, you know, menus, options and like this. And then when I started to kind of invite more and more people to talk about UX specifically, it, it seems to be more. You know, at first I thought it was like, oh, it's like game design and how uh, to approach like a, a certain idea. But it's like kind of beyond that. It's like a step before that about implement before implementing these ideas in the game. It's like trying to understand player motivation, uh, their, their thinking and, and, and everything involving that. So um, I would love to kind of hear more of like the introduction to ux because i feel like it is a outside of your group <laughs> like a lot of people don't really fully understand the benefits and what it is being used and i know specifically in this case you know game is like a natural if anything one of the first imp implementation of ux right if not correct my history uh, of it uh but like how how what where what is this part of the development that that is not full that is misunderstood right now yeah i think i mean this is such it's it's an amazing question it's and it's a loaded question too mm -hmm. um if we look at the the history of gaming you know gaming games are the most interactive digital experiences out there full stop so they're more of an experience than anything else and what games have been able to lean on historically is you can have games that have terrible ui um the actual usability which is a part of the user experience a lot of people sometimes mistake usability for user experience. It's a part of it. But one of the things that's interesting about games is there are games out there with bad usability, um, bad art even, and actually are good enough games, aka good enough experiences that they've thrived. They've created, you know, big user bases. In fact, sometimes they even become, you know, fan favorites because they have some quirkiness to them or things like that. So games for a very long period of time were able to lean on the fact that they're so interactive and there's so many aspects of experience that you can measure when it comes to the user's experience. Um, I personally don't like the word user experience coming from a clinical background too. The only other place we use the word user is with um, addicts typically, you know, they're a, uh, mm -hmm a user of marijuana or their user of uh, heroin or their user of, I mean, those are not in the same class, obviously. But yeah. when we talk about users in a clinical setting, 
we tend to focus on that. So we like to think of, of it as the human experience or in this the type of games that we work with, the player experience. And how are we starting from, from zero? Well, you know, if you look at a lot of, um, I think, Japanese companies historically, uh, a lot of times thinking about, well, how am I designing to emotion? Like if I'm designing a certain feature, if I'm, you know, um, your history, working on a certain art aspect or certain environment, what's the feeling I want to evoke from that? And the dissonance happens where sometimes what the developer expects or the, what the developer wants to create is very different when what than what the audience wants to create or wants to have. So that's been one of the biggest gaps in user experience is this idea that um, I literally had a, a um, the head of game design at a company I used to, to work with said, you know, I'm the person that finds the fun. That's my job. And a lot of the games that were launched under that person's idea of fun actually didn't viably work out in the market. So I think when you distill user experience to its essence or the player experience, it's what is the optimal experience that we can create for the player? And then what UX professionals do ideally is they work on deeply understanding the audience that they're building for and empowering the people across the organization who are part of that journey. So if they're artists, you know, if, if you're able to understand certain themes, certain values, like if you're building an environment and I'm able to tell you about, hey, you know, our, our target audience here that we're creating this for, um, they really value nature and they really value actually um, a lot of like kind of wintry feels around nature. That's going to give you some, even if it's a summer landscape, it might give you some different ideas or they're very open um, personality wise. They they like to kind of do and see a lot of different things. All of a sudden you're starting to humanize that user into for going from user to player mm-hmm. and starting to see them as a person. And if you're an environmental artist, what comes out from that 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 process is an incredible thing. And really what UX is, is the science of, of understanding our audience and moving towards products and production cycles where we're testing against that audience. So now let's say you came back to me with like, Hey, Joe, you're, you know, we're working together on a game and, you know, I'm the the UX lead on the game and you're the art lead. And, and you came up with a bunch of different environmental concepts and we went and tested them with the actual audience that we're designing this for. And we can see what resonates in different ways. Maybe some of the environments you, you came up with were more novel. So they were more like attractive to that person, but they didn't see them as, as really worthwhile over a long period of time, or they didn't really get as much felt involvement or immersion from these things. These are all aspects of experience. Uh, so when we think of the human experience where, you know, we, we see, we smell, we can touch all these different senses. We have our perceptions. That is our experience of reality. And our job as creators is to work against or with that person's perceptions and reality. And how do we create something that's optimal for that person. So that is like what real kind of UX is and what real UX process is. And so there's a testing process to that and an iterative process to that, where then the feedback you're going to get from the hypothesis you came up with from a baseline understanding of the, the user, you're going to be able to go, oh, I have a really good idea. And that's what's really cool about Solston sees with all of our customers, um, we see that that process really coming to life and really seeing, you know, on the audience side too, we've had game companies um, and like older games too, like things like EVE Online, where customers come back and they're like, whoa, like they're like, they're getting better and better. Like, how are they, these features are just getting awesome or, you know, their NPS scores are going up or things like that. And they're like, how's that happening after 20 years of behavioral optimization? Well, it's happening because we're enabling, you know, artists, game designers, UX designers to get a better and better understanding of the player and really create better experiences for people. So I think the the biggest misunderstanding was like when I first went to big, U, to um, big fish games, a lot of people thought UI was UX, yeah. um, and and there was a big sort of of change management process that had to happen there. And and one of the reasons I I realized that that was happening in gaming is because our our experiences are so interactive. We never had to really up until recently when it got it's just more and more competitive every year. We never had to really understand UX holistically because there's so many parts of, of experience and experiential reality that games tap into versus like a Google. You really got to get the user experience right on search because if you don't, it doesn't work. So there is on products that have less interactivity, less immersion. Um, those are those early on were some of the most evolved companies when it came to thinking about user experience and what user experience is. Yeah, I mean, there's a 
couple of things that just from the general knowledge, like, you know, we hear about Steve Jobs and Apple and UX approach with Apple products, you know, how mm-hmm. receiving the package, opening up the box, you know, that was my first real understanding. I was like, oh, it's a separate thing. <laughs> it's like a whole other thing. And then, you know, I had also, like you were mentioning, like I kind of clumped it up with game design, you know, because it felt mm-hmm. like, you know, when you're talking about the science of interactions, like, isn't that what they're supposed to be doing? Right. And no, but it's like, again, you know, it's more kind of like a foundation for all things. Uh, yeah. Like you were saying, like in relation to art, Uh, as well as design Uh, there definitely is a layer of maturity that I feel like your team and your discipline brings to games especially because it you know a lot of developers artistically or or design wise kind of when they start a project they kind of only rely on their own experience and usually like this is what I find fun and there's surely a group of like-minded people out there that this Mm -hmm. would you know be attractive for but again there's a reason why there's a lot of product that fail because the research and the data set needed to be generated to kind of put a product out there the the homework wasn't done right and uh what i found with ux is that a lot of this have been clinically proven in other industries and in, in ways that we can approach this in a in a business mindset but also just making it easier right these kind of things uh so like when did ux kind of start like assuming that it, you know games was just a benefit for, for from it like yeah. when exactly this idea of ux and the user experience what is the brief history about this whole discipline that people are yeah, so, kind of finding yes. out right now. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's it's beautiful that it's it's finally coming to the 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 forefront. Um, so it was really born out of this field called human factors. Uh, I went to the University of Wisconsin. I had this professor there. His name is Michael Smith, and he had worked on like, for example, military submarines. And in human factors, the question is like, hey, if someone mistakes a whale for a submarine and blows the thing up, like. That's that's a human factor issue. So how do you solve for those sorts of things? Um, he mentioned that in World War II, actually, one of the things that was done was they they noticed that young men, when they sat for these long periods of time and looked at sonar, that they could fall asleep. There's a lot of human factors, human issues there. So they they started testing with, well, how do they keep these young men awake? And they started emitting electrical shocks in the chair. And they realized that when those shocks were variable, even though they were they were subtle, um, it it increased stress, it reduced performance, it caused more air, and so what they started doing, they realized that when it was done, I think like every eight hours or so, um, that actually these these young men in World War II got used to it. They would literally stand up because they knew the timing, and that was enough to get the blood flow going and enough blood to you know oxygen in their head. They'd sit back down, and then that increased focus again. So human factors is is really a lot of the studies of our our perceptions and our capabilities as human beings and how do we understand them and engineer processes to be able to, um, in, in their case, a lot of the times, um, limit big errors. So a lot of human factors, people were in aviation, air traffic control, military. Um, you know, if you think of like large vehicles that maybe, you know, could have huge problems, uh, medical industry. So it's really high risk scenarios where if you click the wrong button, really bad things happen. Um, so human factors really kind of kicked off that that story. And then really it was um Norman and Nielsen. Uh, I think if you kind of like who popularized it, it was it was that those two, and it was that group. Um, and they became kind of a breadth of resources and training. And there's groups like Human Factors International that were kind of all part of that. And early on, um, I started my my career in UX in Switzerland. I ran a usability lab in Sierra. This was like maybe 2010. And then I worked for a Fortune 500 as well. And my, my manager there, she was like at the Xerox lab um, doing UX and some of the first interfaces that we really started moving towards UX-based interface design. And that was the Xerox lab. And if you look at Apple and their sort of evolution towards experience, like why fonts matter, why 
feelings. Like how, how does someone feel when they get a product? A lot of that came from that Xerox lab thinking. So that was a big Genesis. And, and the people that were at that lab, a lot of them had human factors backgrounds. So a lot of times graphic designers will see like a UX role and they're like, I can wireframe. Why are they making like, you know, $50,000 more than me per year? Well, it's, it's because back in the day, there was very few people that had really good human factor thinking, really good understanding of, of psychology, of how people perceive reality. That's really the background you needed back then to enter the field of, of the early days of, of UX. What happened is it, it became so successful. Like there's a, a stock tracker, for example, that looks at companies that have more people with UX titles than companies that don't. And it outperforms any of the S&P indexes. So companies that invest in UX, and we see the same thing in gaming, by the way. Um, the more UX titles we see within a game company, um, it generally reflects their their uh, financial outcomes as well. So what happened is it got so popular and we ran into a supply and demand issue or demand versus supply, where supply was very low of people that actually had psych backgrounds, uh, human factors backgrounds, anthropology on the research side was a really important skill set. And uh, a lot of people with graphic design skills and UI skills so jumped into the world of wireframing. And that's kind of where a lot of the confusion took place is the mm. uh, field outgrew the, de- the demand. So there's universities like um, University of Washington in the United States, for example, they have a master's in, in HCI and design. It's an amazing program. Most of the students that come out of that are, are really what you would want in a true UX designer. They really understand design. You know, it's where form meets function. Uh, and that's, that's you know, it's not always about, you know, sometimes you have to kill a little bit of the aesthetic to get more of the function. Uh, so it's that it's that friction and negotiation between those two that makes some of our best designers in the world. But then to do that for humans, um, we, we design things for non-humans. We design things for maybe, you know, a factory or putting things together. But when we do it for humans, how do we do that well if we don't understand the, the person? So that was kind of the, the you know, upswing of of UX and what happened. And then companies like Apple, for example, were the first people who really tactilely made us aware of what a great experience is. And that fundamentally is what a UX designer is. They're they're creating that experience. And you know, game does in our case of gaming, you know, game designer is a part of that. An artist is a part of that. Uh the the UI is a part of that, but all those are just aspects of the experience. And so, you know, we're not quite there like industry or societally. Like there's um Norman Nielsen actually have a scale of UX maturity of a company. So there's a way where you can you can just Google UX maturity, uh Norman Nielsen. And you'll see their scale and you can actually understand where your organization is at today. Um, and, you know, the goal is if you think of like an Apple, there's parts of Apple that are in that eighth or ninth bracket. I believe it goes to nine, um, but not all of the company is in that. So, you know, how are we sort of maturing and moving towards that? And I would say like as a as a gaming industry, we're actually a little bit more far behind because we had we naturally had incredible experiences. So we didn't have to depend on the science of UX to get market viability because almost like play play in and itself is probably one of the best experiences we have as human beings. So naturally, games naturally were, were great user experiences without having to focus on the other aspects of UX. And that's where now, because the industry is so competitive, we believe that the gaming industry is actually going to take UX to the next level, and then it's going to permeate all other industries. So it's it's kind of like they had to do it by form and function. Like, you know, you get a phone, it's you got to get it right the first time. You just have to. Where if you get a game, like we literally did play tests um, at Big Fish Games where we had users that were like, no, like don't change the interface. And we knew the interface was broken. We knew it was a bad experience, but for them, it was actually fun to figure out the interface. We're like, Mm. the interface isn't the game. The game is the game, you know? So what, what is for us, I think as an industry gaming now is getting more and more and more competitive, which is what's requiring a leveling up of UX. And what happens internally at game companies is sometimes the game designer is like, wait, but that's my job. Or the UI person is like, but that's my job. Or the, uh, you, um, um, you know, artist is like, Hey, but I create this experience. And then the company hires a UX person 
who only had a graphic design background and a no didn't have a human factors background, didn't have a, a background in psychology or psychology of design. Like you get at great schools, like the university of Washington, they didn't have those backgrounds. And then that's, what's caused a lot of the friction, I think over the past five years and in, in gaming, um, when we get to see it sort of with some companies uh, a lot more than others. All right. Um, you know, with, with human experience being such a integral part of UX, uh, can you talk about some specific instances where you know, the audience intelligent, you know, greatly improved like the gaming uh, experience itself? Absolutely. Um, and it's it's every time. It's not one time. It's literally every single time with every single game team. So. We can start with, I know I mentioned like Eve Online. That's a fun one. I like that case because it's a 20 year old game that most all of us know or have heard of. It's yeah. it's a classic MMO. Um, you know, the the thing is, is most of our games that we've been building, they've been based off of intuition, um, which sometimes that's beautiful and it works out really well. It works out especially in a in a large open market, um, which is our market's more and more of a red ocean. Um, so we still need intuition, but we need to amplify the intuition with the understanding of the person. That's where Solston comes in. But like when we get to games like Eve Online, where they come back and say, you know, we've we've A-B tested everything you could. We've optimized all these different things based on player behavior. Um, and here's our local maximum. Here's our upper limit. Uh, in their case, in their audience, you know, Solston comes in. We we understand the audience anonymously, but psychologically, we're assessing the audience. It's kind of like, um, you know, if you've seen or read Harry Potter, like the sorting hat, we're going, ooh, you know, this person's courageous. Ooh, there's a group of courageous people here. That's interesting. Okay, so we know that that's a group of people. In the case of 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 Eve Online, there was a group of people that were pretty high on altruism, but they were not making it through the first seven days of gameplay. So okay, let's let's take those IDs that are high in altruism and let's make experiences for those IDs. Let's allow them to help other people in that first seven days. Let's allow them to um gift things or help, you know, help team members or things like that. Their day seven basically the people that made it through day seven went up by over 20%. Like that's that's a massive order of magnitude larger. Um we do this with free-to-play games. We do this with games that are being built, like take NFL Rivals, for example. Uh, that game was literally built off of, you know, they go to Solson and they say, hey, can we see an audience of people that really like the NFL brand, but also play crypto and blockchain games? And we go, yeah, you know, it looks like there's about, you know, 50,000 people in our database, let's say, and there's five different psychological groups of those people. And um, this group is definitely like, your beachhead group. They're fanatics. They love the NFL. They love crypto stuff. Like if you get it right for them, you can scale that game. And then they start building based on, you know, who these people are, what their motivations are. And we're talking intrinsic motivations. Um, a lot of the mistakes that people make when they understand their audience, they go to tools that basically focus on extrinsic motivations. Like, are they motivated by exploration? Are they motivated by collecting? Um, these are all extrinsic motivations. Uh, so maybe to highlight, like just example there, there's a study done with kids learning to play the guitar. And they looked at kids that were given money uh, to learn how to play the guitar versus kids that were just said, hey, enjoy. The kids that were given money up front, they learned more, more quickly. But then a year later, they had churned, so to speak. They were done with guitar. The kids that weren't given extrinsic motivators, they effectively went on to learn the guitar, enjoy it, um, play it much better. So what we want is to focus on intrinsic motivators, things like, um, you know, um, pride and productivity, for example, how proud is a person of being productive? That's intrinsic. So you measure something like that versus like status orientation. If you measure that as a trait, it's like, is this person actually as a human being, is status important to them? And is that motivating to them intrinsically over time? And you start to understand these things about the player and what it enables game designers to do. We just had a game designer at a mobility wear as an, another example. He came back and he was like, I just built a game off of one of our audiences. He's like, I built 20 games in my career. Um, we've never had better soft launch metrics. We've never had better retention metrics. We did in eight months. I just flat out asked him like, why? What allowed you to do that? What was different? It was like, I had Solston. I had your product navigator. I had this audience that I could design to and then test my ideas. It's like, you guys like amplified my creativity. Because every time I had an idea based off their motivations, based off their personality, based off their values, 
one of the things Solston enables is for them to test against that. So then they can actually see, hey, this is working, this isn't working. Uh, and that's one of the things that was cool that happened with uh, another game of theirs, Monopoly Solitaire, more on the casual side. So we're seeing opposite ends of the spectrum, like EVE Online, big MMO game, and then casual game over here, like Monopoly Solitaire. Um, that game, they actually, the team was going a different direction with the game, what they thought in terms of intuition. Like, you know, we want it to be a little bit more like this, like that. And we just said, well, test it against your audience, test it against your market. And they did. And the the one that they were not hoping for internally is the one that performed better. And then when it got to the audience and the market, it performed incredibly well. It's one of their top grossing products uh, as a company. And so, you know, it's it's these different sorts of elements of understanding personality, how to design to those experiences. Um, NFL Rivals is the number one app for sports right now in the Apple store. So it results in market success. And I think it's a lot more fun for um, game devs to be able to design to basically you feel like you have a person sitting next to you um, rather than like, I wonder who's going to play our game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, this it's applicable to all, all, all facets of life. I mean, being as a parent, if you're an instructor, yeah. you know, just working with people, you know, you, you know, it's, it's an easier conversation once you kind of find alignment somewhere. Um, Absolutely. So when working with teams or uh, just seeing what's out there, like how, how do you deal with player expectations uh, mm. changing over time? And what do you usually find what the, the attribute to this shift is about? Yeah, that's one of the the core reasons why a lot of companies actually come to Solston is it's very hard to understand experiential expectations. And if we look at right now, we're actually in um, a massive paradigm shift in experiential expectations. And the game companies that are caught on to this or are seeing this are going to be the ones over the next five to 10 years that really, really excel. Um, the game companies that have not realized this yet are we're going to start to see them struggle more and more to release hit games. Yeah. And we're already seeing it um, at, at Solston happen. And one of the things that caused it, like it caused a lot of things is COVID. So, you know, we saw right now we have about 3 billion people in the world that are playing games on a regular basis. Only 4 billion people have smart devices. So you know, half of our planet has a smart device and essentially 75% of that half is playing a game. And that, that group of people playing games is happening at a greater and greater rate. So there's some estimates that about 100 million new people are playing games now every year. And you can see it in a, in a kind of an anecdotal way too. Like one of our investors, he's you know a little bit older and he's like, Joe, you know, I never thought I'd, I'd be playing games, but... You know, I was playing Fortnite with my son, and you know, it's and it's actually really fun. And what happened was a lot of if you look at passive media, so that's things like Netflix, Disney Plus. Um, you know, it's we it's good to enjoy a good movie, it's good to enjoy a good show. But if you actually look at the psychological data of passive media, um, it's it's not you just can't compare to interactive media. It's like they're in completely different leagues. It's why companies like Netflix are like, hey, we need to double down on gaming because they're looking at the future of experiential expectations. Um, people who play games, you tend to see improvements in cognition. You tend to see improvements in mental health, actually. Anxiety, depression. These are things that part of we measure some of this stuff. Um, it's it's net pause. Games are net positive. They're interactive media. There's a two-way conversation. And because of the popularization of games and a lot of people they they watched everything there was on Netflix they watched everything there was on D Disney Plus during the pandemic and they said well you know let me try out this mobile game uh, or let me try out it's more more and more accessible with cell phones and things like that too so there's just so many people coming in and what happened was now that they've tried stuff out um there was the core that was always there and but now that they've tried stuff out they have experiential expectations so what it's kind of like is you know before the pandemic it'd be like it, Everybody was just used to eating at McDonald's and you know, it's not that there's anything wrong with McDonald's necessarily if you you know have it once in a while. But if you're doing that all the time and then all of a sudden you eat at like a Michelin star restaurant, mm 
or some James Beard award-winning restaurant, your experience, your experiential expectations are just going to shift. McDonald's isn't what it used to be. Um, I used to be a ski instructor. Uh, usually go from a bunny hill and you have these seven-year-old kids and they're just stoked. And then you bring them on to their first black diamond and they come back to the bunny hill that they learned on. And it's actually changed. They're like, where are we? And I'm like, that's where you learned. And they're like, no, because it actually looks so much flatter. Their perception has changed. And so because of the success of the gaming industry, because we've made so many good games as a, as an industry, people now want more. Like we've seen in the last five years, because um, we measure all these different UX metrics, things like felt involvement, uh, focused attention, aesthetics, endurability, how enduring is the experience. The baseline usability scores about four years ago for the average game. So we're talking 100 is really good and, and zero is horrible. We're in the 60s. So the average game from about four years ago, like usability scores were in the 60s. Average games now, they're in the high 70s. So the baseline for how usable your, your game has to be just to get into the market is much higher. Um, felt involvement scores. That's one that's actually still quite low as an industry because we're so distracted. There's so many things going on. We want to be immersed. We want to feel that sense of involvement and experience. Um, those scores, just like four years ago or so, were like in the you know 30s, 40s, depending on the game. Um, the more immersive the game, some games were like are still back then were in the 90s. But average, that's always been kind of a trickier one. But now they're in the high, you know, high 50s, um, mid 60s for just like average, average games. So the experience, because we're hiring more UX people, because we're, um, you know, game designers, UI designers, artists are kind of going, hey, like, I want to know my audience before I start working on this environment. Or I want to know my audience before I start doing my game design document. Because all that's happening, we're leveling up, we're understanding the experiential expectations. And we're delivering on that. And it's we're creating this sort of like feedback loop where basically we're because we're creating better experiences, uh, players are also demanding better experiences. And one interesting trait we measure in people is um long-term orientation. So short-term versus long-term orientation. Short-term thinkers tend to you know execute on the moment, they're a little bit more impulsive. Um, you know, if something's really enjoyable as it is, they're just happy to be in that moment. And we saw culturally, like within the gaming culture, that was a much more prevalent trait uh, about three years ago, where now we're seeing within gaming a lot more long-term orientation. So gamers are just not, and we followed up with some research on this, gamers are just not happy enough anymore to get in a game and be like, yeah, this is a good game. It feels great. They're actually thinking, is this something I can sink my teeth into? Is this something I can actually be a part of a community um, I want to be here for a longer period of time. I just so enjoy, like I could see investing in this because maybe they played multiple games before and seen how the community fell apart or gave game devs sort of um, started just developing features based on the loudest, angriest uh, group of people, which was not the major group of people that were actually playing the game and the game went south and they left and they had to go somewhere else. So these expectations that are changing and evolving the more we succeed as an industry, the better experiences we create, we're actually needing to have a pulse of what those experiential expectations are and then figure out how to predict and, and meet them. I mean, I, I'm, I myself have been kind of feeling this uh, the last couple of years. I've been commenting about how, you know, for whatever reason, single player games, narrative experiences are making a comeback. And like for a yes. long time, multiplayer, oh, yeah. short bursts, coming in for 15 minutes, getting out, shooting friends. But now people are super invested in story, you mm -hmm. know, being a part of the world, being living through that experience as, you know, Kratos, but also extending that in, in other industries like movies. People want to watch The Last of Us or like we're seeing yeah. Mario, super, super Mario Brothers being like a major hit. Um, and obviously with AI kind of like making us rethink things, I've always felt like, you know, education is the most at risk because a lot of people's motivations have changed in terms of like why spending the time learn something when I can just get the answer, which is, I feel is like mm -hmm. the biggest student crisis right now. It's like, why pay for four years where I can literally type up anything I want and find mm -hmm. out you know, it, knowledge is not earned anymore, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I've had people on to kind of talk about going back to gamification of 
everything because mm-hmm. that is still intrinsically the greatest motivator t- for someone to keep attention accomplish things they want to because it's fun right the fun mm-hmm. is like the baseline for wanting to do something uh and so but the issue with that industry that people are telling me is that well you're having a bunch of profession uh professors that aren't game designers but yeah. applying fundamentals of game design but you know yeah. they only have like a short extent of their knowledge to do that but then yeah. you have game designers who wants to make like you know god of war or something so there yep. there's like this gap i would love to kind Absolutely. of hear if you have some background on that because again that this falls in with user experience changing in all aspects that yep. affects you know not just games yeah brandon that's a that's such an amazing i think topic like we could probably talk of you know that whole yeah, thing whole on thing. one podcast yeah because you can you can break it down in so many different ways and I want to I want to comment on the one thing you brought up, which was narrative. You know, you see like Breath of the Wild and Tears yeah. of the Kingdom, and just like these incredible experiences. Um, I we had a um a company we we were working with, and um, the game designer there is a good friend, and he was at Nintendo, um, for I think like fifteen years, and so loves narrative, and went to the the company. And said, you know, hey, this game definitely needs narrative. It 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 has to have it. And you know, no, no, you know, players just skip through that. They don't. It just performs poorly. Doesn't work. Um, he was able to convince. So UX process. Let's create hypotheses and let's test them. So they tested these hypotheses, and it turned out that the person on the business side was right. Uh, and the story gets kind of a little bit more interesting and fun. So. The, the version without narrative ended up performing better in the, the tests. Mm-hmm. And this is where a good UX researcher comes in because that was a bad experiment. And it was a bad experiment because it had confounding factors. And one of those was that the narrative itself needed to have multiple hypotheses. The narrative was based on Chris's intuition, how, what he thought was a good narrative, and he went, you know what? I'm going to look at my Solston audience. Like, cause he just wasn't, he's wasn't accepting that narrative could not be a part of this game. Went back, looked at it, saw the communication style and was like, this is my wife. Like, this is Jody. This is, this isn't. So he went re back, back, rewrote the narrative as if it was for his wife. Cause now he understood the player psychology there. Um, got it retested again. And the version with narrative just crush the version without narrative. So, well, the question wasn't narrative or no narrative. It was how was the narrative written? And so, one of my one of the reasons why you know I, we started Solston and why I started Solston it's it's really kind of an unfolding of my own life. And one of my goals has always been how do we increase human awareness at scale? Awareness is the the one thing as human beings that if you have more of it internally, externally. You tend to live a better life. You tend to live a more successful life. Um, the decisions you make in life tend to be less and less due to chance. Your relationships get better. You get better. You evolve as a person. It's just this beautiful thing. And so how do we how do we grow that? How do we increase that? And that's part of why I specifically went into adventure-based psychotherapy. If we look at um, play as a teacher, we're all apes. We're part of the great ape family. Um, all mammals learn through play. Play is an incredibly part important part of development. Um, I have a saying that, you know, when we stop playing, we stop learning. If you look at neurological development of human beings, a lot of people say, oh, our brains stop growing at 30. It's not true. If you watch adults who literally play video games and you look at things like um, fluid memory, which we thought tended to go down over time as you got older, once they start playing games, their fluid memory starts going back up again. So these things like, like play they should be a part of our, you know, experience, part of, part of our human experience. And if we look at, you know, a lot of young kids growing up today where it's like, yeah, I just go and chat GPT and ask it something. And I got information on demand, information on demand. What, you know, the, the thing that I think is going to be so powerful about this reality is every time we as human beings develop a new tool, we tend to learn about it and then create rules around it. And after we create those rules, we tend to understand it better. And if you look at wisdom, um, you know, people's ability to take knowledge and apply it, that's where wisdom comes from. So one of my hopes is that as knowledge becomes more and more accessible, the skill set changes. So now if you look at, well, what do human beings 
very good at that machines are not good at. And I've talked to some young people about who they're already on it. Like they're there, you know, it's kind of us, you know, the, the millennials and the, you know, especially start going older that like, they don't, you guys don't get it. They're like, it's about questions. Now it's about who can ask the best questions who can structure and articulate that the best, who gets access to the best knowledge, and then who has the best discernment skills. Because there's still things that ChatGPT says that are like, you know, they're wild. Like if, if you Google a lot of the stuff that we know at Solston, because we're effectively the most advanced experiential engine out there. Like we understand human psychology better than any other technology that I'm aware of anyway. And so when I ask ChatGPT questions that we know, um, it doesn't know any of that stuff because it's not like information that it could just scrape and, oh, yeah. and learn about. So what's going to happen with AI is the more you can learn about things that are not public domain, which part of Solston, we're we're basically exploring the true nature of humanity. We're at the edge of that and we're understanding that. And so you're going to see these, I think, um, the silos of of really cool information and understanding. And then we can use tools like ChatGPT, for example, to better explore through inquiry, through good question systems, um, basically how we can actually, we we, I mean, we almost, I think, need it as a society to solve some of these really complex problems, like a partner for us. But it's it's not going to get us to the level of creativity and inquiry that we need. And there's still the the, the equation of wisdom. And so no matter how much you know, if you haven't applied that knowledge and learned from the application of that knowledge, mm-hmm. true wisdom is never going to happen. And it's why, you know, chat GPT is not going to be able to run a company anytime soon. It, it has a lot of answers, but it doesn't have a lot of responsive wisdom. And that's one thing that human beings are still really good at doing is general thinking. You know, you can have an AI that can beat you at chess, but it's, you know, probably not going to be able to, that same AI, probably not going to be able to paint a picture better than you. They're two different learning systems, two different models, and they would have to all be kind of connected in different ways. So that the general theory of intelligence, we still haven't solved for that, or we're not even close to that. Like, we don't even know what consciousness is. You know, it's, I think, I feel, who's the I that's doing that? We don't know. There's an I that is thinking and feeling though. Um, And so that, and you combine that with uh, just learning in general, I like, I used to work with a lot of kids that had ADHD. Um, and some of those kids were rightfully diagnosed and they, they went through a really sound diagnosis process and definitely have ADHD. Um, and other kids, not so much it, you know, you, you kind of saw an overemphasis and a knee jerk to go to, Oh, it must be ADHD. And I'd ask parents like, does your child have problems focusing on Fortnite? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. So, you know, if you look at like kind of true ADHD, there's, there's a lot of cognitive symptoms related to that, that in general, there it doesn't matter how engaging the environment is. It, there's going to be, there's gonna be challenges and in some ways and, and not challenges in other ways, but you look at games and I think a lot of kids today are, they're, they're understimulated at school. And then they're overstimulated at the home with it. And it, like when it comes to games, like that's that's such a stimulating environment for a child to be. And of course, they're going to want to seek that. Like they want to learn their little sponges. And so what I think is is the problem with our school systems that are based off of literally the 1800s style of learning, yeah. haven't caught up with the technology we've created at home. And so, you know, I, I just think it's natural for any kid who they want to explore, they want to play, they want to, you know move into the world. They want to immerse themselves into reality. And when a game is that much more immersive, well, and I think you bring up a, a really good point as well, Brandon, with uh, just companies who hire professors with gamification. I know I'm probably going to you know, piss some of these people off, but one of the things that we say at Solston and see at Solston, like we're going through a grant process right now in the EU for where we're partnered up with one of the major research hospitals in Germany. Um, we have one of our customers who's a partner. And one of the things we're doing at Solston is taking real games and saying, how can we use these games to do psychological assessment in a hospital setting, in a medical setting? And one of the biggest problems in, in the medical world is patient adherence. Like, okay, we you know don't drink. You're going to destroy your liver. The person goes back they start drinking again. Well, drinking is not the problem. The trauma they had is the problem. Well, you can't just tell the person, you know, cover up your war trauma with some band-aids and, you know, stop drinking. Well, that's what the drinking was doing. 
And so we have like these kind of like cycles of, of issues. If you look at adherence, you know, no one has to go to their kid and say, hey, you know, don't forget to play your Fortnite tonight. Um, so really good game designers is your point. If you're a great game designer, you're not like, ooh, yeah, let me go, if, you know, gamify Costco's checkout process. That sounds awesome. Like that does not sound awesome if you get to work on the next God of War. Like that sounds awesome. Um, so we have this sort of disproportionate balance of, if you look at some of our best experience creators, um, some of you game designers out there that are listening to it, like you're it. If you've built something before that people genuinely love to play, like you're an incredible creator of experiences. And the more you understand your audience, the better you can do that. And it's just like, it's this beautiful thing. And we do that for entertainment purposes, but the rest of the world, <laughs> education, yeah. healthcare, um, you know, industry, they're all looking at that lopsidedness that we're creating now. And Game like what they don't understand is that you can't take tropes from games. Oh, we have a leaderboard now. Games are like so you know games are play that has been structured. So play with rules is a game, and the difference between a game and a task is a game is fun. Mm. And if it's not fun, and some games are fun for some people and not for other people, but good games are fun for a lot of people. Mm. And that's when you know you've really created a good game is. Most people can play it and have a really good time. And when we come and just gamify checkouts or, mm-hmm. um, you know, school um, education processes, it does more damage a lot of times in terms of the perception of gamification mm-hmm. um, than it does good, I think. Yeah, it's definitely heading in the wrong direction over there. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, Joe, we're actually, uh, you know, heading close to the hour mark. I feel like we definitely need to follow up on a, part two i I feel like ux is like this this cornerstone of the industry that has actually you know a lot of history of science behind it it's it's one of those things where you come across a designer and they have their 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 speak right i was like where do you guys learn all this stuff because i go to art school i get it there's a path but a lot of them was like no somehow they just figured out this language among each other and like you guys read Mm -hmm. books that that explains all this uh, and I, in a lot of ways, I, that's how I kind of discover UX and, and, and your people. It's like, holy crap, man. You guys went to like a whole college, uh, you know, you know, had a mm-hmm. whole degree, had a whole experience with it. And we're just finding out like there's similarities and in, 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 in a lot of backing that we can start using too, especially before a product ships. Right. Absolutely. Is, yeah. And, and like you said, it's getting very competitive that that. It's an edge that everybody needs to start really taking seriously and, and not just like sit alone for 35 years and then wonder why, you know, it didn't resonate with anybody but yourself, which is yep. killing the industry, to be honest. Yep. But uh, I want to kind of shut up, hand the mic over to you and, and and tell the good people out there how to connect with you, how to learn more, any recommendations in, 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 in this in terms of books or, or podcasts or anything so that people can start, um, you know, understanding more. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon. I mean, this has been awesome. So really appreciate you. You have me on, uh, you know, if you want to learn more about what, what we do, uh, solston.io is a good, good place to start. We actually have a newsletter that's going to be booting up. Um, you know, given, given that we're measuring in real time, uh, a lot of this you know, player psychology, human understanding, I'm, I'm going to be biased here and say that we're, we're a source, um, for that. I think when you, when you look outside that, I just go to traditional, you look at human factors books. Um, if you look at the psychology of personality, uh, it's really, and this is, proving sort of Brandon, your point here is a lot of this language has been disseminated verbally from really good practitioners. And there's just not a lot of um, good resources out there. The, the books, I won't name them that a lot of them are on gaming and and this, these sort of topics also highlight a lot of the confusion in the industry. So what I always like to say to when I start mentoring young people, I mentor people at the university of, of Washington and university of Minnesota and university of Wisconsin who have these backgrounds, um, you know, focus on the fundamentals first and the fundamentals are human perception. So Mm -hmm. the neuropsychology of perception, um, you know, 
interaction design, IXD, uh, look at like, you can just Amazon, some of those textbooks, um, start there and then find somebody that you know, uh, who can connect you with a person that you think is an amazing experience and find out who created that experience at that company. And it very well could be a, a game designer or an artist. And they're going to be able to give you a lot of insight on how that experience got, got crafted. And I guarantee you, there isn't one incredible experience that was not created without the person or a person in mind or an understanding of a person. So um, moving towards that reality. And yeah, you know, um, if you want to reach out, uh, you can go to our, our website, solston.io. And we're more than happy to, to have a chat with you. Uh, we have a lot of like, our, the person was the VP of, of Consumer Insights and Strategy at Activision's here or um, Head of Insights at Scopely. Um, there's just a deep bench of people who have done this. So we're more than happy to talk to you if you're you're interested in growing UX within your company or just your individual practitioner who says, you know, I, I'm, I'm an artist or environmental artist or a designer and I want to really understand my audience better. I'm happy to have a chat. Awesome, Joe. Well, thank you. And links in description and all that will be in the episode as always. I want to thank you, Joe, for, for stopping by and educating me uh, and, and then the listeners out there and learning more about your, your craft, the secret weapon that, you know, seems like all the big successful companies are, are starting to utilize or have been utilizing. Uh, but thank you, man. And see you guys all next week. Thanks, Brandon. Hello, everybody. Brandon here. I want to talk to you today about something very special. We've been on this wild ride together, haven't we? From my early days as a senior employee, feeling a bit lost, all the way to leading multiple studios, transitioning to smaller indie teams and to the mobile industry, and now running my own game studio for the last six years. Throughout this time, you've been here listening and learning along with me, sharing this never-ending journey of discovery. This year, I'm kind of on this quest of meeting serial studio founders, discussing acquisitions, or exploring what it takes to grow a studio to over 100 developers. I've always tried to find an exciting topic to delve into, and every year is a little different. The focus is a little different because that's where I am in my career currently, and I want to be able to share what I'm learning with you guys. So I've always been dedicated to asking the tough questions, bringing you insightful answers from industry leaders and experts. And now I want to share with you how I'm applying these answers to my own journey. This is why I'm excited to announce that for just $1.99 per month, you can now subscribe to our exclusive content series. These bonus episodes will give you a deeper look into my personal experiences and how I'm putting into practice what our esteemed guests are preaching. It's more of a personal side of the journey that I hope will show you that we're all in this together and we're all continuously learning. Whether you're a game developer, studio founder, or just a passionate gamer, there's something in it for everyone. By subscribing, not only will you gain access to this exclusive content, but you also be supporting the ongoing production of the regular programming. It helps keeps the lights on and ensures that I can continue bringing you top quality content and insight into the world of game development. The links to subscribe are in the description. Your support means the world to me and helps me keep doing what I love, sharing this journey with you. So show some love, hit that subscribe button, and let's continue this adventure together. Thank you all for your continued support. And as always, stay tuned for more exciting content. Until next time, this is Brandon, signing off.